0: Hey, good morning. Hi, brothers and sisters. We are glad that you are here. Uh, this gives away kind of our agenda this morning. Um, we are going to do some uh, baptizing. We talked about it last week. If you remember, we looked at John the Baptist's baptism and showed how the Christian baptism that we practice um, it, it not only fulfills but kind of completes what John's baptism was pointing towards. And uh, we've got some folks to baptize this morning. We're going to hear from them in just a moment. But the New Testament gives several different snapshots of what baptism is and what baptism represents. Last week we looked at Romans 6, the idea that we are united in Jesus' death and united in His resurrection. There's another picture I want to look at this morning to kind of set this up. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to Exodus chapter 3. I want to remind you, uh, vision night, tomorrow night. And, and if you notice, John colum has new glasses. Um, secondly, 6.30 to 8. Uh, what we do with those, we, we, um, we share a bit of, of what's happening at the Elder... Uh, Board where we feel like God is directing us. We take some questions. We give some updates. Uh, You are invited if you've been here for 40 years. If you've been here, this is your first Sunday. Everyone's invited. 6:30 to 8. We don't have childcare available, but you can bring the children in. And uh, just want to let you know also, you saw if you were here on the video announcements, we're hosting something called the Mentor Conference. And that is uh, beginning Friday, the 24th. I'm gonna be there. A bunch of our team's gonna be there. We're excited about that because it it, it fulfills one of the things we feel like God has directed us towards, and that is the idea that, that the generations are to be together in partnership and mutual investment. And so the idea of mentoring is a compelling idea for us. So we wanna invite you to that. You can find out more about it on our website. Uh, and we're taking signups. If you want to come, uh, we're taking signups out on the patio today. And then lastly, uh, We have a 5 o'clock service that usually uh, sees a video of the morning, and I think they'll probably get this one. And so, hey, hi, 5 o'clock service. We're glad you're here. Um, Exodus chapter 3. Well, this one's the best one. We all know that, right? Mm. Exodus chapter 1 is what I meant. Exodus chapter 1. Maybe they won't get this one. No. Exodus chapter 1. Now, I want to um, uh, re-go over a story that is very familiar, but it is the defining sort of picture of salvation in the Scriptures, and it's, it's the Exodus, hence the name of the book. If you remember, the book opens with the nation of Israel, having been in Egypt now for almost 400 years, and in verse 8, remember the book of Genesis ends with a man named Joseph, leading his entire family into Egypt. Now, verse 8 of chapter 1 of Exodus, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. We must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ram- Rameses as cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all of their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. So the picture we get from Exodus chapter 1 is of God's people, who were the bearers of a promise given to Abraham generations before, are now being, they can't celebrate their Sabbath, they are now in forced labor, and any sons that are born are now to be murdered. Okay, so the picture is grim. Flip over to chapter 3. God calls Moses, verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them to the land I promised. Flip over to chapter 7. Moses has a few concerns about this whole plan, so we spend some time addressing those. And then in chapter 6, therefore say to the Israelites, Moses, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Chapter 6, verse 6 I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore I would give you. And so this begins a series of judgments against Egypt and the gods of Egypt that we know as the ten plagues. Right? There are plagues, and the plagues are really interesting if you took time to study them because they, they were not only physical plagues designed to force Pharaoh's hand, but, but they also were plagues against different deities in the Egyptian pantheon. And so there's a fascinating kind of undercurrent going on in all of these. Now, for the first nine plagues, Israel didn't have to do anything. They just existed where they existed, And the plagues were leveled against the Egyptians. But on the the night of the 10th plague, God said, I'm going to, because Egypt was taking the firstborn of the Israelites, I'm going to take the firstborn of Egypt. But on the night of the 10th plague, Israel, you actually have to do something to be immune from this plague. And thus begins the story we know as Passover. Right where they would take a lamb and at twilight, they would slaughter their doorposts. with blood, and the angel of judgment that was being poured out on Egypt would pass over their house. Now, the thing that is interesting to note is this. On the night of the tenth plague, Israel had two problems, and not just one. The first problem was the problem they'd been having for years, and that's they were slaves to Pharaoh. But the second problem was now the wrath of God was coming against Egypt and they actually had to grab hold of a substitute to be removed from that judgment. So they had two problems. The wrath of God was being poured out and they were still enslaved to Pharaoh. Alright, now pick up the narrative, chapter 12. This is the plague that finally breaks the will of Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Exodus 12 verse 31 Exodus 12:31 During the night Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, "Up, leave my people you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds, of you, as you have said, and go, and also bless me." <laughs> the Egyptians urged the people to hurry to leave the country for otherwise they said we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added. They carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites, did as Moses instructed, asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. So they literally plunder the Egyptians as they're leaving. Right? The Egyptians are so excited to have them leave. Here, just go ahead. Just get out of here. So... They leave, and then we know very famously, Charlton Heston leads them to the edge of the Red Sea. <laughs> Exodus 14, verse 10. So, God's leading them. They're laden with plunder. There are tons. I mean, there, there are other actually other peoples coming with them, so they're very, very slow. Pharaoh wakes up and realizes, what have I done? I've just given away our entire workforce, right? I mean, we're going to hit recession here pretty quick. And, you know... That's a big deal. So, so he goes and he sends out their fastest troops. Verse 10, of Exodus 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. Now at this point, they are, they've got the Red Sea on one side, the Egyptians coming on the other. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, "'Was it because there were no graves in Egypt "'that you brought us here to die?' What have you done to us by bringing us out here? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. Now remember, they got no Sabbath, they were oppressed, their firstborns were being killed. Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve them than to die in the desert. And Moses answered, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Verse 19. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. Now, we know the story, right? They make it through. And then the minute the Egyptians try to follow, the Red Sea now covers them, and they're all swept away. Chapter 15 is a song of triumph that the Israelites now sing In response, and we're just going to read the first two verses, but I want you to show, I want you to see that after the exodus, they celebrated, they said, uh, verse 15, chapter 1, no, chapter 15, verse 1, Then Moses said to the Israelites, or then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver, he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. For the Israelites, this is the defining moment for them that salvation would take an Exodus form through the rest of the Scriptures. When God talks about bringing them out of exile, He uses new Exodus terms to do it. Exodus. In fact, some people look at the book of Genesis as the story of how they got into trouble, as the kind of prequel to Exodus, because Exodus really is the center of the Scriptures for them. So there is a sense in which this picture, we cannot do it justice, having known the story, having read the story, having watched the story... This was the defining mark of what salvation looked like for the Jews. Now, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul says something very interesting as he's making another point. He says it almost in passing. But this is where we kind of hook into the story a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Notice the word he uses here. says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all what? Baptized into Moses... In the cloud and in the sea. Now, he goes on to make a different point, but I find it very interesting as he's using Exodus, uh, an Exodus picture, he uses the word baptism. That going through the waters of the Exodus is one of the pictures of what baptism represents. Remember last week, we saw that baptism represents the union of our death with Jesus, that our old self, our old nature, the failures, the mistakes, all of that is dead and buried, and a new self is resurrected in its place because of our union with Christ, not only in His death, but in His resurrection. But here, the image is is a, a bit different. It is the image of an exodus, that you go through the water to find the salvation Of the Lord. In fact, I would argue this is an image the New Testament writers use all over the place. Go, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Flip a couple of books to the right. Ephesians chapter 2. Israel, on the night of the 10th plague, the plague that ultimately resulted in their salvation, they had two problems, right? What were they? Bondage, yes. I like that you guys are all up front now. I mean, you back, you, last week you were back there. It's hard to bug me for back. True. You gave me this though, I picked it up all the way back there. Not today. Not today? Okay, okay. So, so I'm gonna take the mumbling as total acknowledgement of the two points I made earlier. Number one, bondage to Pharaoh. And number two, The wrath of God was coming. And and for the first time in the plague sequence, they actually had to do something. They had to, by faith, receive a sacrifice and mark their doorposts, right? Now, the New Testament says that all of those in Christ have the same two problems. Notice Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Right? A reference to this great adversary, this fallen angel called the Satan in the scriptures. That's not so much a name as it is a title, which means the accuser, the slanderer. So you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of. "...of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air." That's slavery. "...the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, at all of us also lived uh, among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath." So Paul's picture is that we have the same two problems. No longer is it an earthly Pharaoh that we find ourselves enslaved to, but now it is this great ruler, the prince of this world, Jesus calls him, the archon of this world, this great ruler, the Satan, that we all find ourselves enslaved to. But also, and as a consequence, we now find ourselves deserving of wrath. We have the same two problems. And that is why Jesus, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, is our Passover lamb. So salvation takes on for Paul an exodus shape. It's not just the appeasement of wrath or the propitiation of wrath or the satisfaction of wrath, but it's also deliverance from the slavery that we find ourselves in here and now. Go, if you would, back to Romans chapter 6, and we'll read another part of that section. It's really interesting the language Paul uses. So what does baptism picture? Baptism pictures our union with Jesus, the death of our old self, the resurrection of a new self. But baptism also pictures an exodus. As we, like the Israelites, find ourselves objects of wrath and enslaved to not only the cravings of our own flesh, but the prince of the power of this world, and like the Israelites, must do something in response by faith, take the blood of a lamb and apply it, that we too might be set free. So, so I, I just want to make the point, salvation has many pictures in the New Testament, There's a courtroom image, there's a slavery to freedom image called redemption, there's a relational image, adoption or reconciliation, but there's also an exodus image, an exodus shaped image, where the Israelites had two problems on the night of the 10th plague, we have two problems, and that Jesus is put forward to not only turn aside the wrath of God, but to set us free from a very real slavery we find ourselves into. Notice how Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6. If I can get there. Romans 6, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your what? Your master. Now, see, we don't pick this up. But if you're Jewish, and there were some Jews in the church in Rome, any talk of slavery and masters is Exodus talk. doesn't matter how many generations have gone by. It's it's Exodus talk. Because you are not under the law any longer, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves as someone To someone as obedient slaves. You are slaves with the one you obey, of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So that is a whole mouthful. Now we could spend tons of time on, but here's the picture. It's an Exodus picture. If you've got that Jewish mindset, it's an Exodus picture. So, the predominant Jewish idea of salvation is Exodus idea. That God was pouring out His wrath over Egypt. The Israelites, by faith, had to do something, not only to have the wrath of God displaced, if you will, but also they were in very real slavery to Pharaoh. So the Exodus accomplished two things. Their deliverance into freedom and the appeasement of God's wrath. Now, anytime we talk about God's wrath, people kind of get a little funky. God's wrath is really good news. God's wrath is God's relentless commitment to do away with evil once and for all. That he will purge, he will refine, he will, there will come a day when he will simply say enough. Enough. Enough murder, enough rape, enough tragedy, enough cancer. Enough. Enough sin, enough death, enough. And so we believe that God is not just love, but that love is holy, it's fierce. And that love and justice are perfectly congruent with each other and that Jesus was put forward as the one who would take upon Himself the wrath due us, but also would now set us free in Exodus terms from the slavery we were in before. So, the, the people that will come up and go through these waters, yes, they're united with Jesus in death and resurrection. That's why we immerse, because we love that symbolism. But secondly, they are being and have been set free. So the idea is, they go through the water the way the Israelites went through the water too. And that this picture becomes the defining picture of their new identity. That's the image. Whatever identity they carry into this water is now rendered obsolete by the identity that coming out of this water represents. Are you with me on this point? And what did the Israelites do when they were delivered in that first exodus, what did they do? They sang. Now, brothers and sisters, I know we are very, very reserved, but might I suggest that there is no more beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus than what we're about to do. And that salutations, songs, claps would be totally appropriate to celebrate the exodus of these brothers and sisters this morning. Would you agree? So Jay... Come on up, bring the folks. We're going to be baptized. Now, what I want to do, do you you remember that thing we read at the end of the service? The pledge of renunciation? Yeah. Um, We decided, there was such an incredible response from from our our church about this that we wanted to read it every time we baptize people. So I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to say this together. I hope you remember. If you're new to our church or you're just not sure what you're getting into, or you're just a little bit like, I'm not sure about this Jesus fellow, Uh, you don't have to say a word. That is totally okay. Uh, But for those of us who have given our lives to Christ, baptism represents the embracing of one life and the renouncing of another. And so when the screen says reader, I will be the reader. And I will read that part. And when the screen says church, guess who that is? It would be you. And then, and then right at the very end, we'll read it all together, okay? So let's go ahead and put it on the screen. By the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we who have been called to be a part of the kingdom of God, pledge our lives wholly and completely to our Lord Jesus Christ. We renounce Satan, our adversary and all that belongs to the kingdom of darkness. We pledge to love and worship the only true and living God and to worship Him alone. We renounce the false gods of our world, the gods of money and sex, self, and power. We pledge to gain all of our life and all of our worth and all of our security from Jesus Christ alone. We renounce all idolatrous ways of getting life, worth, and security apart from Christ. We pledge to practice Christ-like love towards all people, at all times, in all circumstances, including those who might regard themselves as our enemies. We renounce all hatred, all racism, all sexism, all violence, all bigotry, all bitterness, and all unforgiveness. We pledge to live as ambassadors of reconciliation, announcing and embodying the good news that God is reconciling the world to Himself and to each other through Christ. We renounce the sinful walls that separate people from God and divide people along ethnic, national, political, or generational lines. We pledge to be people of hope, committed to waiting and working toward the day of Jesus' return, We renounce all fear, all worry, and all anxiety about the future. Altogether, by the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we who have been called to be a part of the kingdom of God pledge our lives wholly and completely to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. All right, brothers and sisters, now. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat. Jay is going to share a little bit. We're going to hear a couple of these stories. and uh, And we're going to get on with it.